After the glory days of David and Solomon, expansion, wealth and construction, Israel declines into the Dark Ages. From 900 BC onwards, the story is one of division, civil war and defeat. It comes to a head when the Babylonians sack Jerusalem, smash down the city that David established and burn down the temple Solomon built. Jerusalem is left in ruins and God's people are deported as forced migrants living in a foreign land. This is known as the exile. It's the darkest period of the Old Testament. And yet, into the darkness, hope shines. God raises up prophets who warn of judgment, but also promise that the best is yet to come. The prophet Isaiah pictured Israel as a barren wasteland, but then promised, God will make your wilderness like Eden your desert like the garden of the Lord. And Isaiah also saw Israel as a barren woman weeping, but soon she will shout for joy. For in the womb of Israel, the prophets saw the coming Messiah. He would bring hope and victory, not only to Israel, but to the whole world. Today, when we feel barren, ruined or empty, God brings new hope. Through Jesus, he restores us and gives us a future. The best is yet to come. Welcome to session five, Exile and the Prophets. In our journey through the Bible, we've reached the final chunk of the Old Testament. So let's remind ourselves of the story so far. In the beginning, God created a good world. And even as it went wrong, he called Abraham into the plan to fix it. But remember through Joseph, Israel went down into Egypt and were enslaved for 400 years. But God stepped in and rescued them. Moses led them out. Joshua led them in to the promised land. Then after the cycles of the judges, Samuel anointed David as king, who established the kingdom before handing over the throne to Solomon, who built the magnificent temple. But to fund his projects, Solomon oppressed Israel with heavy taxes. So after he died, the people complained to Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. Sadly, he took bad advice and decided to show him who's boss by taxing them and working them even harder. This caused a division in the kingdom seen here on our installation as the northern kingdom broke away from the southern kingdom. So from now on, the story of the Old Testament is a story of two divided kingdoms, one in the north and one in the south. Now, the ten most northerly tribes, or the northern kingdom, were also referred to as Israel in this period. They appointed a rival king and functioned as an independent nation in a region later known as Samaria. We'll consider the plight of this northern kingdom in part one of the session, and then in part two, we'll chart the southern kingdom. This consisted of two tribes, named after the most significant, Judah. Now, crucially, this was David's tribe. So they held on to the capital city, Jerusalem, 
and also the promise of the Messiah descended from David. Now, let's get back to the northern tribes. They got off to a bad start, and it went rapidly downhill from there. They no longer had access to Jerusalem in the south, so they set up alternative worship sites in Dan and Bethel. There they made golden calves as physical representations of God. But the Bible refers to this as idolatry, and it was strictly forbidden in the Ten Commandments. So God raised up the prophet Hosea to challenge Israel's idolatry. God told Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman who cheated on him with other men. Now in that culture, Hosea could have had her put to death. But instead, the Lord said to Hosea, Go again and love the adulterous woman who is loved by another man. Love her even as the Lord has loved Israel. So that's the prophetic punchline. To God, idolatry is like committing spiritual adultery. To love anything more than God is like cheating on him. Now, I imagine most of us don't have a golden calf in our living room, but our hearts can worship idols just the same. We pursue substitutes for the real God in status and image, property and possessions, hobbies and holidays. But we eventually wake up to the reality that serving idols leaves us stressed out and empty. Only the love of God truly satisfies. And that's the shocking message of Hosea. God's love remains faithful to us even when we cheat on him. Now, in the Northern Kingdom, Kings come and go, about 19 in total. But not one of them honours God or protects the weak and poor. And as a result, Israel becomes a place of exploitation and even slavery, as those in debt sell their children in a practice known as usury. How ironic! God had delivered Israel from slavery, and now they're putting each other back in chains. And so that's where the prophet Amos fits into the story. Amos was from down in the south, but God called him up north to challenge exploitation and greed. As Amos quits his job, it reminds us that prophets were not professionals, but called by God to deliver his message. Now, Amos targeted those involved in human trafficking and exploitation, and he rebuked their hypocrisy and called them instead to pursue justice. The most famous verse in Amos comes in chapter 5, when the Lord says this. I hate, I despise your feasts, and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, this verse from Amos inspired a modern-day prophet, Martin Luther King. He quoted it in his famous, I have a dream speech. Amos and Martin Luther King both illustrate the way that prophets disturb society by challenging the status quo. You see, most of us get numbed to the way the world is. Greed and poverty, 
injustice and exploitation. But prophets shake things up. They carry the heart of God and challenge apathy, crying out for social justice and spiritual righteousness. Now, as a result, the prophets were not always the most popular people in town. Now, you may be feeling stirred by injustice, inequality or exploitation in our world. Amos left a comfortable job in order to speak up for the poor and marginalised. I wonder what God is calling us to do. Instead of living for comfort and popularity, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a never failing stream. Now, some prophets also feature in the story, but without a book named after them. The most famous was Elijah, who also prophesied in this northern kingdom period, when idolatry was at an all-time high. The king Ahab had married a foreign woman called Jezebel, and she ran the show. She slaughtered God's prophets and replaced them with the prophets of Baal. Now, remember, Baal was considered the god of the rain. So imagine the moment when a nobody from nowhere marched into the royal palace, confronted king and queen and said this. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He was a bold prophet, the kind of guy who just says it as it is. He told Israel that Yahweh, their God, not Baal, controlled the rain, and he just turned the tap off. Now, as drought kicked in, a dramatic showdown unfolded on Mount Carmel. As all Israel gathered, Elijah challenged them, how long will you waver between two opinions? Imagine a bird going along a branch that forks and it keeps going and does the splits. Israel is doing the spiritual splits. It's got a foot in both camps. So the prophet challenges them to make a decision. An altar is set up and the prophets of Baal pray and dance and cut themselves, but nothing happened. Elijah taunted them, shout louder, perhaps Baal's asleep or on the toilet. Then as Elijah prayed, the God of Israel sent fire from heaven, it consumed the altar, and on that decisive day, Israel turned back to God with all their hearts. Now perhaps you've been doing the spiritual splits, scared to fully commit your life to Jesus, a foot in both camps. You know, this is a painful way to do life. Why not today fully put our trust in the God of the Bible? Now, despite a great victory, Elijah was a human just like us. The pressure got to him and he had a meltdown, so he never fully completed the job because he ran away. But the Old Testament finishes with a promise that a prophet like Elijah will come again. He will announce the arrival of the Messiah, the only one who can finish the job. Think John the Baptist. Think Jesus. But more of that next week. My wife and I have three young children, and on the whole, they're good kids. But sometimes we have to repeatedly warn them. 
On the way to school, they might see a puddle and we say, do not jump in it or you'll get wet feet. They go right up to the brink of the puddle and we warn them again, don't go in or you'll be sorry. We turn our back for a moment and splash. Soon they're in, soaking wet and then cold and facing the consequences. Well, we warned them, right? And that's Israel. God sent prophets who repeatedly warned them, but they just didn't listen. And so in 722 BC, they faced the consequences. The Assyrian army conquered Samaria and the northern kingdom. So this part of our storyline reaches a dead end, as you can see here. Now, the Assyrians were a brutal people who tortured their captives, impaling them on poles by the roadside as they conquered territory from Iraq through modern-day Syria all the way to Israel. And their policy was to break apart nations by deporting some of the population and bringing in other ethnic groups. And by mixing them up, they dissolved identities and broke the will to fight. So the northern kingdoms became mixed up with other peoples. And this may well have been the origins of a people group later known as the Samaritans. Now, either way, Jews down south grew to despise these Samaritans as Mongols. And that's the context for the famous parable that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, to Jesus' hearers, the idea of a Good Samaritan was a joke. Put the text in its context, and we get to appreciate the power of Jesus' punchline. And still today, the Samaritans as a charity continue this parable, offering hope to thousands of strangers in need. Now, as we've just seen, it's so helpful to put the text in its context by finding out some background information. But how can we access it? Well, one resource that really helps is a Bible commentary. Now, if you watch sports, you'll be familiar with the idea of a commentator. It's the expert who gives a running commentary that helps the viewer understand what's going on. Bible commentaries, then, give some background information and helpful explanation for any given passage of the Bible. So you could use a study Bible, which includes an introduction to each book and then a commentary that runs along underneath the Bible passage, giving some further explanation. Or you can get more detailed commentaries on each book of the Bible. There are also some great online resources. So whatever level you're at, there's an affordable way to go a bit deeper. Why not have a look at the back of the manual to see more recommended resources? So we're now in a position to appreciate perhaps the best known and most amusing prophet of them all, Jonah. This one might sound like a story for kids with a big fish vomiting up a runaway prophet. But what's it really all about? Well, here's some crucial background information. Jonah featured late in the Northern Kingdom around 750 BC, when the Assyrian Empire posed a huge threat to God's people. So put this text in that context, and we can appreciate both the comedy and tragedy 
of this brilliant short story. So God called Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah turned 180 degrees and ran away. Why? Well, what if I told you that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire? So God called Jonah to preach to Israel's brutal enemies who would soon invade them. This might be the equivalent of a Jew going to preach in Berlin when it was the Nazi capital. A suicide mission to an evil people who didn't deserve mercy. So Jonah, in its context, is a story about loving our enemies and stepping out of our comfort zones to share God's grace. So let's consider the prophet Jonah in his context and apply the challenge to our lives today. Now with the northern tribes defeated and dispersed, all eyes turn to the tribe of Judah down south, from which the term Jew is derived. Now they survived the Assyrian attack and slipped into spiritual complacency, assuming that what had happened up north would never happen to them. So God sent numerous prophets to warn them of the threat of exile. Now this section of the Old Testament is recorded in 1 and 2 Chronicles, and it's probably the least known and hardest to navigate. There are lots of unfamiliar names and events in this period that can seem confusing. But don't despair. Let's see the big picture by placing the key books and characters onto our storyline. Now, it's helpful to think of this part of the story in three main phases. Phase 1, before exile from the time of King David until around 600 BC. This period included several key prophets such as Jeremiah, Micah and Obadiah, as well as Habakkuk, Nahum, Zephaniah, Joel and Isaiah. Then phase two, the exile itself. Judah was deported up and round to Babylon for 70 years, as shown by this section of our storyline. But as we'll see, in exile, God still spoke through characters like Daniel and Ezekiel. Finally, phase three. After the exile, God's people returned and rebuilt their homeland. This phase is recorded in books named after key leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra, as well as the book of Esther. And after the exile, we also find prophets like Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi who promise that the best is yet to come. So that's the big picture. But now let's look at each phase in a bit more detail. When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they also besieged Jerusalem down south. 
Now, siege was a brutal tactic that cut off all supply routes and just waited for the city to starve. The king in Judah at the time was Hezekiah, and he was understandably afraid and considered early surrender. But God raised up the most famous prophet, Isaiah. And Isaiah worked with King Hezekiah to encourage the people not to give in to the psychological warfare of the Assyrians. God somehow would deliver his people. And sure enough, a secret water supply was discovered and piped into the city through a 530 meter tunnel called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And this supply saved the city until the Assyrians succumbed to disease and left. Now, the story was recorded in two chronicles, but the location of the tunnel was then lost. So many people just assumed, well, this was all just made up fiction. But then in 1838, Hezekiah's tunnel was discovered. And today you can walk through it as I've done and see for yourself that the Bible is founded on real history. Archaeologists regularly discover new items and inscriptions that further support the biblical accounts. Many are on display in the British Museum and other sites around the world. The Bible is not fiction or myth, but historically accurate and credible. Now, as we've seen in our daily readings this week, the prophecies of Isaiah also include stunning visions of the future. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet sees a harmonious new creation. A wolf lies down with a lamb. A toddler plays with a cobra. Don't try that at home just yet. But then an even more remarkable vision. Isaiah sees all nations reunited under God signalling the end of warfare and the arrival of a global harvest. They shall beat their swords into ploughs and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Today, Isaiah's vision is still depicted by a statue outside the United Nations building in New York. Our world is still longing for the fulfilment of this promise, a truly united nations under one head, Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. Now, last session we noted that different styles of writing in the Bible need to be understood a bit differently. So how should we interpret the Old Testament prophets? Well, firstly, we need to understand the prophets in their original context. In our Bibles, the prophets are arranged according to size, not date. The large prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah are first, followed by 12 minor prophets. So using a commentary or study Bible, find out when and where they prophesied. And once we place the prophets in their historical context, their message begins to make sense. Now, secondly, understand the prophets as God's mouthpieces. Prophets often introduce their oracles or speeches with a key phrase, thus says the Lord. In other words, this is God speaking. 
So prophets functioned a bit like press secretaries, meeting with the president and then addressing the nation on his behalf. Prophets then weren't fortune tellers, but forth tellers, letting Israel know the now word of God. And to get their points across, the prophets sometimes used a form of street theatre with symbolic actions. As well as Hosea marrying a prostitute, Isaiah walked barefoot and naked to show that Judah would soon be led off in exile. Jeremiah carried an animal yoke, symbolising coming oppression. And Ezekiel even cooked his food over excrement to show that desperate times lay ahead. So the words and actions of the prophets were designed for maximum impact in order that God's people might heed his warnings. Now finally, understand the prophets in the light of Jesus. Old Testament prophecy contains stunning glimpses of the coming Messiah. Take, for example, Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah must have put down his pen and thought, what am I writing? How on earth could a child also be Mighty God? But at his birth, Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He fulfills this amazing prophecy. Or take Isaiah chapter 53. It's about the anointed servant of the Lord who is tortured and beaten until he no longer looks human. And Isaiah's prophecy is clear that a divine exchange will take place through his sufferings. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. As Jesus, the Messiah, died on the cross, his hands and feet pierced by six-inch nails, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. So lots of Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in ways that far surpassed the prophet's own understanding. Suppose back in the 18th century, someone was given a prophecy, your great-great-great-granddaughter will ride into London in style. Now, they would assume that must mean a horse and carriage. But what if it was actually a Rolls-Royce car or a helicopter? The prophecy would have been fulfilled, but in a way the original hearer could not have dreamt of. In Jesus Christ, Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled but in ways that far surpassed the prophet's wildest dreams. Now, despite some good kings like Hezekiah and later Josiah, the southern tribes failed to heed the warning of the prophets. So in 597 BC, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They had replaced the Assyrians as the world's new superpower, and their king, Nebuchadnezzar, was not to be messed with. Now, initially, only the officials and some elite young men were led off into exile in Babylon. And this included Daniel, 
who remained faithful to God even in a foreign land. In fact, he ended up in a den of lions because he refused to stop praying. But Daniel overcame every challenge he faced in exile. Now, in the New Testament, Christians are referred to also as exiles. We live away from home as citizens of heaven on earth. And as a result, we can end up feeling, well, a bit different and even a bit isolated because we don't share the same values or priorities as friends and colleagues. So the story of Daniel inspires God's people today. We can still succeed while living away from home. Now it's our turn as exiles to live faithful in a foreign culture. Now, soon after the first wave of deportation, Judah rebelled against Babylon and brought more trouble on themselves. This time, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. His army smashed down the walls of Jerusalem, burnt down the temple and led the majority of Judah's inhabitants on a 500-mile journey to Babylon. This was the terror of exile. And the sense of defeat and devastation was later captured in a book called Lamentations and also in several Psalms of Lament. The city of David, once the glory of Israel, was now destroyed and God's people humiliated. One psalm captured the mood among the exiles as they sat by a river in Babylon. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. These homesick exiles wept and lamented their terrible loss. Maybe you've experienced a season like this when it's hard to understand the tough things that are happening and you wonder, where's God in it all? The Bible doesn't suppress those questions. Instead, it gives us the resources we need to express our emotions to God even when we're really hurting. Now, the destruction of the temple caused an identity crisis. Where was Israel's God? Had he been defeated by the Babylonians too? So God raised up Ezekiel, who experienced dramatic visions while in exile. He saw a mobile throne leaving the temple in Jerusalem before it was destroyed And this throne symbolised God's rule travelling to and fro across the earth. Ezekiel then saw a stunning new temple being built. And out of it, a river of life flowed, bringing healing to all the nations. Israel's God was not defeated. He was still on the move and working out his purpose to bring hope to the world. So after 70 years in exile, suddenly the Persians defeated the Babylonians and announced the new foreign policy. The Jewish captives were allowed to go home. So in several waves, the exiles began the long journey home. The first group to return began to rebuild the temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel, a good name for someone called to work with a pile of rubble. Now, The work ground to a halt. 
And so God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to finish rebuilding the temple. Eventually, the temple was rebuilt and a ceremony dedicated it to God. But after a pregnant pause, nothing happened. There was no return of God's glory like the cloud that filled Solomon's temple, or like in Ezekiel's visions. Instead, this temple was like an empty shell. Today, only a small section of wall from the original Temple Mount still stands in Jerusalem. It's known as the Western Wall or Wailing Wall and is a place of prayer and lament for Jews to this day. Now, in a later phase, the great leader Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem. He brought fresh resources to fortify the city. Without walls, Jerusalem was vulnerable. Living in it would have felt like sleeping in your house with the front door open. So many of the exiles had actually lived out in the countryside in fear. Nehemiah led an amazing effort to rebuild the walls and put the gates back on to secure the city. Some sections of Nehemiah's walls are still visible today in the old city of Jerusalem. So with the walls rebuilt, Ezra and Nehemiah worked to reform the people according to the laws of Moses. And they also celebrated the Passover for the first time in a long time. So by the end of the Old Testament, God's people are back in the promised land. Jerusalem and the temple are rebuilt. And yet so many of the promises and prophecies are unfulfilled. The last prophet was Malachi. He concludes the Old Testament with perhaps the greatest promise of them all. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. Throughout the Old Testament, God had raised up key characters to fulfill his purpose. Adam and Abraham. Moses and the judges, kings like David. But now, look who's coming. Malachi prophesies that Yahweh himself will come to the temple. God is about to write himself into the story and walk onto the stage of human history. So as the Old Testament closes, it's like Israel is heavily pregnant with promises and sitting in the waiting room. She is carrying the hope of the whole world. Right back in Genesis, God promised that the offspring of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, destroying evil and restoring paradise. The prophet Isaiah heralded the arrival of this boy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Then, finally, in Bethlehem, a virgin gave birth to a child. The Messiah has arrived.